everyone, and welcome to another episode of That's Absurd, Please Elaborate, the show where we take your questions, our questions, pretty much any questions of any caliber, and we apply serious, rigorous research to find the answer, no matter how ridiculous the question may be. I am one of your hosts, Julian. And I am Trace Dominguez, the other host, and this week we've got two questions for you, all about earth and what would happen if it moved farther away and pineapple on pizza this is gonna be a real interesting episode i'm really excited about it this is gonna be yummy or infuriating uh depending on how you feel about the answers to both questions So thank you to those who submitted those questions. We are going to get to those throughout this episode. If you want to submit a question, you can always go down into the show notes or find us on our website, that's absurdshow.com. But I think, Julian, I think we should start with your question this week. I really want to know the answer to this. Okay. I mean, I'm also curious about the the pizza question. But yes, let's start, I guess, the the broader scope uh, question, which was submitted by Jason. Jason asks... If we could move the Earth farther from the sun, what would happen? And this is a, this is a banger, I think the kids are saying these days. Um, That's what the kids are saying? I don't know. I'm in a class, actually. I don't know. I know you know, but I don't know if I've mentioned it. But I'm taking a class at the CC because I've got some time and I want to learn calculus. And I'm like, let's do, let's do calculus You're a class. nerd, so you're like, yeah. oh, I've got free time. And That's some my... people are like, I've got free time. I think I'm going to go learn a hobby. And you're like, yeah. I'm going to go learn calculus. Yeah, why not? Exactly. And you know what? <laughs> it actually came in handy for this research. But anyway, Ooh. I know, teaser. But like everybody else in my class is like in their early 20s, late teens. And I just feel like I'm crumbling to dust around them. So uh, I'll check with them <laughs> if uh, if they still say that's a banger. But the point stands. This question is just one of the all time like, I've got an idea like, and, yeah. and let's the solve the world's problem. Jason's framing is exactly perfect because I think it's kind of like a knee jerk reaction when you hear about climate change, right? Jason yeah. included in, in his question notes, he says, So global warming is being spoken about more frequently in my life than it was before. In Futurama, the Earth was moved away from the sun in order to stop it. What exactly would happen if that was done? Bonus points for mentioning Futurama in the question because um, that's uh, I I don't want to give the game away, but I feel like that's a guarantee that I'm going to pick it. <laughs> yes, it's true. It yeah, Julian, Julian has a he has a type of question. It, like it, yeah, he, Julian's got a type. You know, when he looks <laughs> at a question and he's like, "Ooh, you got those you got those words mm. in you." I like it. Ooh. I like it. Matt you know? Greening was involved in some way. Yeah, I'll pick it. Um, but, you know, Futurama, it was done because it's patently absurd. But there are people who, frankly, should know better, who have also mm. asked this question. Par exemple, <laughs> uh, the distinguished gentleman from Texas, uh, one uh, Louis B. Gomert, perhaps you've oh, heard no. of him, did ask, in 2021, he was talking to a member of of not even NASA, I think it was like the Forestry Service or the Bureau of Land Management. Oh, no. And he asked somebody from the Forestry Service, uh, yes, would it be possible to move the Earth farther from the sun in response to climate change, wildfires, what have you? I'm rubbing my face so hard right now. It the hurts, worst, but, the worst oh, part God. is I've been a fan of Louis Gomert's work for a long time, and this is not even the dumbest, like, not even the top ten dumbest things I've heard him yeah. say. But anyway, um, not to say Jason's question is dumb, because it's a fantastic question of what would happen if we could do it. Louis's question also- is... Why aren't we doing this as a viable option? So just want to distinguish the two. No, I agree. I think I think Jason's question is there are so many geoengineering projects that yes. people, you know, you, you see them in movies and in science fiction across the genres of like, oh, we'll just darken the skies with these particles. We'll just put a giant mirror in space. We'll just literally move the earth. Like there are way so many of these. And this is a show about absurd questions. Yes. 
Yes. So th- and the, uh, this is the place. And the question again is, assuming we could, what would yeah. happen, right? Not yes. like, I've got a great idea that's going to fix this climate change thing in one fell swoop. Okay, so let's first talk about exactly how far, you know, we would have to move the Earth. So we kind of get an idea mm. then of like what the effects would be at this distance. Wait. And like, yes. So just a quick primer for those who aren't aware somehow about what global warming is. Energy is sent from the nearest miasma of incandescent plasma. What? You told me a few episodes ago you needed me to wait. I waited. And I waited. I really wanted to see how long you would wait. For those who aren't aware, I have used that reference to a They Might Be Giants song before, and Julian got very upset. So this time I waited, and he didn't go. So moving on. Oh, my my God. Oh, so good. Okay, sorry. A gigantic nuclear furnace. Thank you, Julian. Yes, we got there. (laughs) The sun sends all this energy out into the cosmos. And as it's doing so, some of that energy hits our planet. The energy that cannot escape back out through the atmosphere is trapped by greenhouse gases, as they are known, typically things like methane, carbon dioxide, other gases as well. And those gases hold in that energy, which is expressed in our atmosphere as heat. The more heat energy inside of the atmosphere that there is, the hotter the planet is going to get, which means things start to be affected like the polar ice caps, the ocean, our lives, literally everything in the terrarium that is spaceship earth uh so global warming it's happening it's real we acknowledge said so things happen so how do we fix that question thank you great that was a great primer uh to catch everybody up yeah and so the issue right at the core of uh global warming or just to be even more accurate right climate change because the earth is on average uh warming up But sometimes, because the Earth is a big, very complicated system, sometimes in certain places it can actually cause extreme cold, right? Like when it messes with the jet stream and causes polar vortices to come farther south than they used to during the winters and all, you know, New York and Texas like freezes over, right? You'd think Louis Gohmert would be concerned about that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it is... Due to an average overall increase in uh, the temperature year over year, but sometimes it can cause extreme hot and extreme cold. Just depends on when, where, very complicated factors involved. But yes, so the primary problem, right, is because we're dumping too many greenhouse gases because we use them as a source of energy a lot, right? It was locked up in the ground as coal, oil, you know, in, in chains of hydrocarbons. We burn them to release the energy stored in those chemical bonds, and then the emissions are gases that happen to absorb energy from the sun. Okay, so the most obvious solution, right, is just, like, stop burning that stuff in the ground. Please, That'd be way easier than moving an entire planet. Yeah, well, I mean, let's let's do the math to to make sure that that is the case, right? We did the math. Yes, well, in this case, somebody else did the math for me, but I checked their math with my calculus knowledge and found it to be good and accurate. So, you know, I'm not just taking somebody else's word for it completely, but uh, there's a Scientific American article in response to the Louis Gohmert question from 2021 that just kind of broke down how impractical this entire thing would be. And uh, the author of the essay article got a, a uh, astronomer from uh, Beloit College named Britt Scharinghausen to actually write out the math. And so she takes the equation. And what the equation that you're interested in, right, is the thermal equilibrium equation. Of right. course, everybody knew. I that, Yeah, that's right. of course the right. equation that we're interested in. Please, Julian, come on. Yes. This is... <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, everybody. Well, the issue that. the issue is we're we're taking in more radiation and energy from that than we're sending back out into space, right? And so we're warming up until we're going to reach an equilibrium point. So uh, when you look at the equation, right, there are a few different 
um, variables involved, right? There's albedo, which is how reflective the Earth mm. is. Great uh, trivia question. So good. There's, you know, the thermal energy that's coming out off of the sun, and then you've got one of the variables is distance. So if you use some calculus, and I love this note from the astronomer Britt Sheringhausen, where she actually, she does the derivative of the equation, and she like highlights it, and she writes, draws a little arrow and says, sorry, calculus. <laughs> which is my, it's so, it's such an adorable touch. Like, I have to do calculus for this, sorry to tell you. But anyway, when you do that and you move some things around, basically what you get is uh, if you want to know how much farther you need to move the Earth for a given change in temperature, the equation is basically negative 2 over 255 Kelvin, which is like our average global temperature right now, times the distance from the Earth to the Sun, which is... Usually, just to keep things simple, we just call it one AU, right? One mm-hmm. astronomical unit. Uh, if you really want to know it in kilometers, it's a hundred and forty-nine point six million kilometers. So it's just wow. easier to say one AU. Yeah, it's one AU. Or 93 million miles if you're not on the the metric train yet. Plus, just having something, a unit that's just one is nice and easy to work with. Okay. Yeah. So, so negative two times the divided by t- two hundred fifty-five. Divided by the t- Divided by 255 Kelvin. Right. Uh, uh, then times t- 1 AU. Yeah. Oh, and times whatever change in temperature you want. So if we ah. say we want to just keep on burning away, like worst future climate change scenario that we've projected, right? Like, we're going to burn every drop of oil we can find, yeah. and then we're going to go out into the universe <laughs> and maybe get more. Yeah, we're not going to bother like any sort of switching to renewables, nothing like that, right? We're just going to keep right on burning and we're going to rely on this planetary movement project to save us, right? So the projections are all that uh, burning of fossil fuels is going to raise the temperature by three degrees Celsius, right? So if we want to offset that by three degrees by moving the planet farther away, you just plug that number into the equation, right? And the result is basically 0.02 AU. Or put another way, we'd have to move the Earth 2% farther away from the sun than it currently is. That seems easy. 2%. That's like like a little, that's tiny. That is 3 million kilometers. The entire Earth (gasps) has to be moved 3 million kilometers farther away, right? Yeah. Okay, uh, but that doesn't seem that hard. Okay, let's let's put it another way, right? The, okay. the article continues, and I love, because this question's so common, like, you know somebody had to do all the math on it at some point, so I yeah. appreciate that. Okay, so the same uh, astronomer did some calculations again to figure out, all right, if you want to take the entire mass of the Earth, which is, uh, geez, let me see, I just, I don't even know how to count this many zeros in terms of That's kilograms. So many. Right? Million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion. What comes after that? Sep, 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 sex, 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 sextillion. Sex, then sept. And then septillion. Okay. So, so the sept- Earth is seven. Oh nearly six septillion kilograms in mass. So that's too many, that's, that's too many kilograms. That, that's too many. So that's a, a six times ten to the twenty-one, or, oh or God, that's... six with twenty-one zeros after it. You're talking billions of billions of billions. <laughs> that, it's okay. So it, it's you have to move all that. So the amount of energy it would take to move all that is 5 times 10 to the 31 joules. Now, I know joules, maybe we don't have a lot of perspective on that, so look at this Yeah, way. joules aren't very clear. The entire So 5 times 10 to the 31, a 5 with 31 zeros after it, okay? That's a the lot of The amount of energy that we make on Earth, the entire Earth, in a single year, so over the course of a year, every burning single... Burning fossil fuels. Burning fossil fuels, but also nuclear, solar, wind. Everything. Put it all together for a year and we make 10 to the 19 joules of energy wow we need to like make a lot more so we don't even we don't even get i mean it's it's minuscule we don't even come close not even closely close we we it's it's a distance from us to the sun like in terms of the gap between how much energy we make in a year and how much energy we would need to move the earth just these three, these paltry three million kilometers, right? Oh, okay. wow. Two per two percent of one AU. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. It, it would take a ton of energy. Now, furthermore, I think the really interesting question is how? Yeah. Like, so like, let's say we, we did do that. 
what yeah so we it's found not an like alien can, device that will power not, it well I, okay if we did do that we can we can skip to that let's imagine we haven't found this alien device yet okay. like what do you do do you put a whole bunch of rockets like in space and then like hitch them to a telephone pole on earth or something and then yeah. just like how would turn you... them on and oh my god it'd be like, like where do you anchor the the thing that's gonna propel oh my... you forward right god i'm just even trying to think about how you would how long it would take us to because remember the lego the lego sun you episode oh yeah I'm just like how long it would take us to build the anchor part you know the part there's no like chassis of the earth for towing there's no tow hitch yeah you'd have to like dig a giant thing and then you'd have to embed it into the bedrock of the earth and and then spread it out so it's not just one you don't want a high heel situation where you're like applying a lot of pressure in one spot you have to spread it out so you have to build this network of super strong then you have to bury all of that again and then have your hitch above the earth at oh my god God. Okay. okay. This and is then, crazy. And then, right, the Earth is spinning, so you've got to <gasps> fire it at a very particular time to actually get, you know, the thrust pointed in the direction that you want. Wow. We right? can just put it on the poles, one on each pole, just build two, and then have like a big, like at the b- bottom, it's just, you know, oh. it can swivel. It can still oh, swivel. But of course, that's then clever. it's. But then the Earth is wobbling because of precession. So then mm. we have to really work with that. So then we would, I've been playing a lot of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. So then we would need some other like more like horizontal thing to, you know, to manage that. And then that would have to attach to some kind of wheel attachment. So then all of that could be wobbling and spinning. But the the post that's attached to the other wheel attachment should be stationary. Yeah. And of course, glued on top of all of that is a Korok that can't find its friend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. For those that play, for those in the know. Yes. Oh, God, I hate those guys so much. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. So we've created our, our bipolar rocketry system. That's also, remember, Earth-sized. <laughs> right, right. And then I can't even imagine how big the rocket would have to be in order to achieve this. Because, again, the amount of energy that it would take to move the, the Earth, the mass of the Earth, is just incomprehensible. Like, yep. we when a rocket launches and you know uses some of the earth's spin to actually like achieve orbit and stuff it actually no joke reduces the earth's rotation but like by such a minuscule amount it yeah. doesn't matter thanks new right Woohoo! And those were with the most powerful rockets that we have. Uh, there was a, an article in the conversation that talked about this idea as well. And to put it in perspective, right? If you took the Falcon Heavy, mm-hmm. so SpaceX's most powerful rocket so far, yeah, you would need in order to change our orbit, you would need the equivalent of three hundred billion billion Falcon Heavies. Oh, I mean, 300, I'm like, okay, we can do that. 300 billion? <laughs> you know, if everyone on Earth, that's all we did for, like, who knows how many centuries. Sure. Um, but then there's another billion, and so there, it's like, we're screwed. There wouldn't be an Earth left because we would have used so much material, like, turning it into fuel. And again, keep in mind, the whole purpose of all this was to uh, offset climate change. And yeah. we're just dumping yeah. Uh, carbon into the atmosphere in order to accomplish this. I think we would sizzle to a crisp before we moved probably a single kilometer farther away from the sun. So wow. I don't have any math to back that up, but it feels like it a, feels right. a correct it assumption. Feel, it's, it, it, it feels like this is so science fiction. Just because <laughs> it's like anything in space. It's so hard to wrap your head around. And the Earth is just so, so, so much bigger than you think it is. And yeah. space is so, so, so much much bigger than you think it is and everything is moving and everything is complicated and oh my god we are just we're just specks of dust on the back of an ant on the back of a whole giant thing speaking of things being moving and complicated has anybody given any consideration to what's going to happen with i don't know the moon if we start you know just moving? Uh, no (laughs) 
<laughs> I am. Also, wouldn't we like put ourselves in the path of new asteroids that oh, they used uh, to be near misses and now? <laughs> oh, okay. So that's another idea too. Is oh. what if we used? What if we intentionally redirected <gasps> asteroids in order to get like a gravitational assist from them? <laughs> oh, good. Okay, okay. I thought you were going to say and hit divert. Earth with them. No, well, <laughs> like, that is the then that we'll is, move. Um, <laughs> That is one potential drawback that I was going to bring up, right? But like, yeah, there's this idea, okay, maybe instead of using just rockets strapped to the Korok on the North and South Pole, instead, we we divert asteroids to swing by us close yeah. by, and then that will change, you know, deflect our orbit a little bit, like the, the gravitational lineup or something like that. So uh, this is something that's been tested by NASA before for asteroid, div- I haven't tested it, but they mathematically they know it works right it's like you put you put mass near something in space and you kind of park it there and it sort of like tugs it's mutual gravity like tugs it a little well, moves it a little or put it this way a lot of um space probes like voyagers one and two used the gravity of planets in order to accelerate and uh, and gain speed right. and and change their trajectory right like it's this like is actually falling toward a planet so you're speeding up as you're falling toward it yeah but you miss the planet and you just fly off in a direction yeah. and it's all so planned you, out mm-hmm. and you you basically the probes actually are stealing a little bit of that energy from the the rotation of the planet and you know they're they're using it to accelerate themselves uh it's why voyagers one and two had to be launched when they were launched uh i mm. think the president the proposal for president nixon they brought up the last time that the planets would be in just the right uh, orbit and they told them like you know john adams had this opportunity and he, he messed it up so you don't want to be remembered like him do you president mm-hmm. nixon <laughs> Uh-oh. anyway uh so by the way fun fact uh voyager one was actually launched after Voyager 2, but they knew that the path Voyager 1 would take because of the, where the planets would be over its route, that Voyager 1 would overtake Voyager 2. Huh. So yeah, even though it Fun was fact. launched second, it, they Fun named fact. it Voyager 1 because they, they did math because they can math. They, they know how to math. Because math's amazing. Take a calculus class at your local community college, everybody. Okay, so if you were to hypothetically try and use like asteroids in the asteroid belt to use something like you know the gravitational assist thing that we use for space probes but for earth the entire mass of all the asteroids in the asteroid belt if you took all of them and diverted them uh by earth to change our path you could get at most another 748,000 kilometers away Oh, so no. and we're shooting in this scenario right for three million. <laughs> three million. So I mean, so, so we we buy ourselves what like a, a couple months of uh, yeah and climate and, change um, <laughs> and we, like, well, assuming assuming all of the asteroids are redirected correctly, you know, and none of them go just a little bit off course and like cause the next KT extinction event, right? Because right. like that's that's a very small asteroid that can do that at the speeds yeah. we're talking. Because everything's moving in space really really yeah. fast. Yeah, it's a lot lot of energy. Wow. Um, Jeez. Yeah, that's, yeah. Fun fact. Okay, about kinetic but, energy speed's more important. Anyway, but so yes, say we do it. Right. Say we get, have an alien device that magically there. creates using Naquita the thing from Stargate SG-1, my favorite science fiction program. We have a Naquita generator that's allowing us to do all this stuff. We can do it. Okay. So we move the Earth an additional, say, three million kilometers away, and we uh, also do not, you know, cause the moon to, I don't know, collide with us and kill everybody. Or any asteroids kill anybody. Right. Uh, Basically, along with the temperature dropping, probably the most noticeable and interesting effect would be the year would get longer. Ooh, cool. Yeah. So this uh, this is Kepler's third law, which... All that extra days, they come in vacation. I think they should just legally... I'm telling, I'm putting my foot down now. They, they come as vacation. Yeah, you 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 know they'd make us work. But Ugh, the... they invent a new month called work month. <laughs> Congrats on your extra days. So specifically, if we went these three million kilometers, uh, we would gain 11 days in our year. Perfect vacation yeah. time. Yeah, the math is really simple for that because the um, basically it's just like the relation between how far we are and how long it takes to go around the sun is uh, P, the orbital period, squared equals A, which is the, the distance from the sun, cubed. So you can just rearrange that, pretty quickly figure out 
exactly how much time you'd get. If we went 102% of an AU farther away, yeah, we would get 11 days out of the year. That's pretty nice. Like, so 11 extra days, as long as we're doing this, can we like eliminate a few of the like quirks of the calendar? Like let's, let's either make leap day, you know, like it either, I, I'm sorry to say for you mostly because it's also your wedding anniversary, but it is. <laughs> we either need to keep it every year or we need to get rid of it. Let's like stop with this jumping in and out. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like we could fine tune it, right? Because the, the reason we need a leap day is because we don't go around an even 365 days per one period. It's, it takes us 365 and a quarter days a little yeah, more ish. than a quarter there's, yeah a little more there's like a weird right it's like to significant figures it's quite a few yeah it was it was a problem you know back in the 1200s because by that point the calendar that they'd been using since the roman days the julian calendar haha, uh, had had put them off astronomically speaking by 11 days and mm. so the pope pope gregory in the catholic church was like we're celebrating jesus's rebirthday on easter wrong and that's that's probably going to be frowned upon so figure out a new calendar for me and that's the gregorian calendar that a lot of us in the you know western world use uh to today and that's why leap days the formula for leap days now is it's every four years unless the year is divisible by a hundred unless unless the year is divisible by 500 mm. interesting yeah. And that more or less keeps us on pace for like a while. Pretty, but pretty well, yeah. Eventually, some day is going to get cut from the calendar, and you know it's going to be somebody's birthday, and they're going to oh. be so bummed. We really just got to <laughs> add a day. Can't we just make it so that there's like, okay, this is the year where there's 366 days, but it's like not a day of the month. It's just in between December 31st and January 1st. It's just one. It's just we just call it null day, and that's yeah, the but, day where you can just there's no bills. There's no you just like you, you don't have to. Work. People, people are going to be born on that day. Like, it's an inevitable Shoot, guarantee. Right. And what do they just not exist in any sort exist. of government they're system? Born, they're technically born the next day. <laughs> they're just non people. Everything is just they're... waiting until the next day. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we solved that's it. The day, that's the day the purge happens. It's <laughs> Null Day. No! Don't <laughs> do it. No laws. Everybody, <laughs> happy Null Day, everybody. So just to wrap this up, because basically, yeah, the Earth would be cooler, assuming that we could do it without catastrophically just utterly ruining everything um, because of this magic device we found. Yeah, it would be a little cooler, uh, and the year would be a little bit longer. And because he asked this question framed in terms of Futurama, I actually figured out how far in the Futurama episode they moved the planet from the sun. Because in the episode, right at the very end, they moved the planet a little farther to cool everything down, thanks to, to Bender's giant fart. That's the whole plot. I don't know if you... I'm a big Futurama <laughs> fan. That's my favorite highbrow sci-fi show. Uh, and President Nixon's head. Wow, he keeps coming up, doesn't he? He really does. Wow. He announces that uh, because we've got an extra week, that'll be party week. <laughs> so... Because of the math that I've been mentioning, I hope everybody at home was taking notes, you can figure, okay, if the year is a week longer, right, <gasps> if it's 372 days now, well, then you can go and figure out the how far the Earth was moved from the sun. And it turns out that he moved uh, the planet, Bender's fart did, about... Uh, 1.27% of an AU. And if you want to know how much uh, Bender's fart cooled the planet based on this distance, it was cooling it down by 1.625 degrees Celsius. Wow. Yeah, so that's all that, that Futurama episode for 1.6 degrees. Well, rig diggity I don't know how Bender sounds. <laughs> <laughs> Baby, I know it. I can't do... I can't do Nobody his can voice. do a Bender voice. Come on. There's only there's only one John DiMaggio. Yeah, he's yeah, the only one no, who can do I the can't, voice. I can't do a Bender, baby. Well, thank but you I'll for try. answering that question, and thank you, Jason, for submitting it. Let's have a quick break, and we'll come back for my question about pizza. If you've turned into this... Turned into it? You've turned into one. You've turned into a science comedy podcast. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm a podcast. Am I going to be late to work? If you're tuned into this science and comedy podcast, chances are that you are someone who loves learning and having a blast while doing it. If it wasn't clear, Trace and I are the same way. We thrive on learning new things because it not only enriches our lives, helps us learn new skills, but also makes us really cool at parties. Is that what we are at parties? Are we? We are, right? We're cool. I mean, when you're at my house and I'm at your house, definitely. But like, oh. Other houses. Anyway, <laughs> this is all to say 
I am super excited about our new sponsor, Brilliant. Yay! Can I kind of get a little, like, you know, in my feels for a second? Oh, yeah, get those feels. Elaborate, please. Hey, I see what you did there. I am exactly the kind of person that Brilliant was made for. I have always been interested in math, physics, computer science. When I had the chance to study these things in college years ago, I was also really intimidated by them. Yeah. And I avoided taking these classes. And honestly, I regret it. I'm going back now. I'm taking classes at my local community college. I'm loving it. Yeah. But with a family and work, traditional classes like that, I'm finding them really hard to actually fit into my life. So I was really excited when you told me that Brilliant was going to be a sponsor. That's awesome, man. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. If you don't know what it is, by the way, out there. It's an interactive learning platform with so many lessons on topics that I always wanted to explore, and I can do them at my own pace, on my schedule, and in a way that keeps me engaged. You can learn by doing on their website or with their mobile apps. And there are thousands of different interactive lessons in STEM subjects all across the platform. Their lessons are engaging and interactive. You can brush up on like algebra or advanced math, multivariable calculus, differential equations, computer science, Python programming. You can even learn about cutting edge stuff like large language models, neural networks, the things that are powering AI today. Large language models really be great now. <laughs> large language models. You can learn large language models. <laughs> <laughs> it's only Gaelic, though. The large language that you can learn is Gaelic. Yeah, ship that. I'm in. We can finally communicate with the Scots. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, anyway. Wherever you are in your learning journey, there is a brilliant course that will help you get to the next level. Or, you know, just be basic enough to get you an understanding that you can go and work with. Yeah, they're always adding new courses too. They just launched a ton of lessons focused on analyzing data. That's cool. That's really cool. I think the world would be a better place if everyone had to take a stats class. Oh, totally. And if you haven't taken one, here's your chance. You could just go take a statistics class and make Julian so, so happy. I would appreciate that. Try it out. You can try Brilliant for free for 30 days. Just visit brilliant.org slash absurd or click the link in the show notes. Once again, that's brilliant.org slash absurd. When you sign up, you'll get 20% off the annual premium subscription and it supports the show, even just trying it out. So go ahead Check it out. Maybe get sucked into a few lessons. Trace and I are going to be here with the rest of the episode when you get back. If you get back. Oh, I hope you get back. They come back and they know more than us about everything. <laughs> They're just like, these guys are idiots. <laughs> their brains are the size. This huge brain coming out of their cranium. I've absorbed all knowledge. Why do I listen to this podcast of dummies? I have no time for your absurd <laughs> antics. But I would definitely take one on large language models. <laughs> a cool. Scottish AI robot that nobody can understand. <laughs> Sorry, turn on the lights! Sorry! Arm the burglar alarm! It supports the show. It'll be great. And we're back. Hey, Julian, how are you doing? I'm pretty good, Trace. I'm a little hungry. I'm a little peckish. Hey, nice transition. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Thinking of getting myself some, some za, as the kids are saying, I can uh, report. Are they from really? From my community. No, they're oh not. They're God. really not. That's awful. So we have a question this week sent to us by Nicola from Los Angeles. Oh, hey, this is Nicola from Los Angeles, California, US of A. And I was wondering, why do people hate pineapple on pizza when it's so delicious? I, okay, that's not my actual question, although I do wonder that because who doesn't love a juicy, warm morsel of sweetness on their pizza? But why do we all have different tastes like we're eating the same thing but some of us hate it and some of us love it how how does that work help me thank you love you bye oh he loves us but he also loves pineapple on pizza so his standard of love is suspect hey watch it we gotta <laughs> we gotta get into the science first okay so I, I love that Nicola had a like tentpole statement in his question, right? He's, it was, yes. why do some people hate Agreed. pineapple on pizza? Parentheses, they're wrong. So I, uh, <laughs> I admire that he's just willing to be like uh, a, a, how do I say this and keep our clean rating? A poop disturber. Uh, <laughs> a poop disturber. <laughs> in order to get, what is a fair question of why do people have different tastes? In general, so because there's no accounting for taste. <laughs> a poop disturber. A poop disturber. Oh my god. I hope people were a hungry. Shabupi. 
Um, this is an excellent question, and I just want to lead, you know, get everything out there. Julian, I think I know the answer. Do you like pineapple on pizza? Uh, I feel like I'm going to get shamed for this, but yes, I do. I'm not going to shame you, Julian. I don't believe I'm gonna, you. I'm going to validate trust you. you. I'm going to validate you, buddy. I also think pineapple on pizza can be good. I don't always like it, but I'm not like a absolutist in this. Mm. And that is going to be the theme of this answer is don't be a pizza bigot. Boo. Okay. Pizzas are good no matter what. That's what I'm going to end this question on as well. But I'm getting out here right at the top. Pizzas are great. Everybody loves pizza. We should all love pizza. And if people want stuff on their pizza, just let them like stuff on their pizza. Yeah. But so. if you like calzones, you're a maniac. I mean, that's not even really pizza. It's, it's sort of just like, it's, a, it's like more of a pasty, you know, <laughs> situation. Anyway, we can talk about that on another episode. So this episode, we're talking about why some people hate pineapple on pizza. Uh, but more specifically, which I really love that he clarified, why different people taste things different, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so perception of taste. We all learn this in elementary school. Um, it's based on our taste buds, which actually we have way more than you think. And you can't even see them all, even though when you stick your tongue out, you're like, look, my taste buds. You're actually not really seeing all your taste buds. You're seeing like little chunks. I'm, I'm not going to get into it. Uh, but the taste buds are very cool. They have these little microvilli hairs that sense compounds in our food, uh, actually in anything you put in your mouth. It's not just food. Um, so Julian, maybe you remember, can you name the five different types of taste? Yeah, they are sweet, salty, yep. sour. Nice. Uh, oh, man. Hold on. I, I know the, the one that's probably going to trip everybody else up, but I can't think of the fourth one. I'll say, okay. It's so sweet, salty, sour, umami. Yes. And. It starts with a B. Bitter. Yes. That's it. That's Nailed the, it. That's the bit And one. I totally agree. Umami is probably the one that messes with people the most because if you're the age that Julian and I are, you might have not even learned about umami as a flavor. Um, it's also known as savory, mm-hmm. although we use the Japanese word for savory because of, you know, the, the it was discovered in Japan in the 1980s, yeah, I believe. That's correct. Um, also, and so we've got I, sweet, sour, bitter, salty, and savory. Yeah. I wonder if Nicola, being an LA uh, native like us, has gone to Umami Burger here uh, and then been told that they will not take the damn mushrooms off the burger because, sorry, that's just how the chef makes it. I hate that. Sorry, go do on. You, uh, do you have, you had a bad experience? I did. Huh? I was, I've never been so, <laughs> sh- I felt like the waiter slapped me when I was like, oh, this burger looks really good, but I'm, I'm not a fan of mushrooms. Can you take them off? And he was like, no. I'm like, what? It's very LA. What? That's a very LA response. I like didn't get anything out of protest. I was like, all right, well, you know, <laughs> but then I'm not eating. Well, and it's interesting that you, say you don't have, like mushrooms. I'm not going to have somebody tell me they know what I like better than me. You know? It's okay, Julian. I'm, Julian? So, I'm so mad about this. Julian. I'm like going to have an You're aneurysm still mad remembering right this now. umami You're mad burger right experience. now. And it's the worst thing because like I love that fun fact that umami is named for the Japanese researchers that discovered the flavor. But like I can only think of umami burger in LA and how they told me that my burger has to have the mushrooms on it <clears throat> please continue <laughs> Whew. wow I was sweating that was a therapy session for me right that there. was good I'm, I'm really glad <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've got these five different ways of tasting things. And I'm going to say the word taste. These are our five tastes because taste is different from flavor. And we're going to come back to that in just a second. So sweet is fructose, lactose, sugars, energy. That's why we know how to taste it. We evolved to be able to taste it for a reason. That's because sugar is typically where a lot of energy comes from in our food. Sour is acids. We're literally tasting hydrogen ions. It's amazing, actually. Uh, And we need it because of things like vitamin C and other citrus flavors, because if you don't have those citrus tastes in your food, you're probably not eating those vitamins, and those vitamins stay off scurvy, which if we don't do, we die. So then there's bitter. That's There's 35 different proteins that have bitter, and most fruits have a plant component, which we also eat. Um, But if, you know, you eat poisonous ones, they have more bitter in them. So we need to do that. Salty is found in high protein foods. A savory or umami is is specifically glutamic acid or aspartic acid. And so we're tasting another thing. And it was discovered in like bone brothy kind of like beef brothy kind of foods. So it's found in in meats a lot. There actually might be two other ways of tasting uh, that we haven't really nailed down yet. And that is fat with fatty acids and enzymes, uh, linoleic acid 
acids, which are found in oils like soybean oil and corn oil and sunflower oil, we might be able to taste those natively. And also alkaline, which is the opposite of sour. It's more briny. So we have all of these different things, and we don't actually know that much about taste. In, in some ways, we know how things work, but there's still a lot to learn. Can I throw in the craziest fun fact that I learned recently about citrus? Yes. It's citrus related. Yes. You know lemons, right? Yeah. How they're all yeah. sour, yeah. right? And it's like, why, yeah. why would like a sour fruit that like, I feel like most things probably wouldn't want to eat. Why would that naturally like evolve if like fruit kind of the whole strategy there is like some eats it and then spreads the seeds around, you know, in the poop with the poop disturber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Turns out lemons are not a naturally occurring fruit. What? They are a hybrid of two other fruits, which are, one of them is in fact uh, another hybrid. So, what? yeah. These are these are human created fruit. This is, yeah. There's, fruit. there's no wild lemon tree in nature, at least not before, you know, we got our hands on, on a couple different citruses and combine cool. them to get the lemon. I love that. Yeah, yeah. So specifically, lemons are hybrids of bitter oranges and citron. Uh, and I think bitter oranges are themselves hybrids of other fruits, of other citrus cool. fruits. Yeah, bonkers. That's cool. I love that. I just know there's a whole bunch of different types of lemon because uh, my partner is Brazilian. And in Brazil, they have different names for the different lemons because they eat different lemons oh, than we do. That's like which their, is pretty cool. their snow, like if you're uh, Inuit, but like oh, yeah, a definitely. lot of lemon I mean, types. there are different. They also have different names for bananas. They have a whole they have a whole bunch of fruits and stuff that we don't have oh. here. Oh, gotcha. Uh, so super interesting. So And they also call everything limon. So it's limon de Persia, limon de, you know, it's mm. all different places. Anyway, so taste is universal. Like every Everyone experiences bitter. Everyone experiences sour. Everyone experiences sweet uh, the same. Uh, there's not, it's not like we don't know how you're experiencing these things because they're physical reactions. It's not necessarily interpretive uh, whether something is sour or not. Also, a common myth about taste is, oh, well, yes, of course, bitter is in the back of your mouth. Sweet is in the front of your mouth. That's actually a myth. That's not true. It's something that you probably learned in elementary school uh, or like from your friends. That's not actually true at all. Uh, taste buds are distributed evenly throughout your tongue, um, although the edges of your tongue as in all around the edges are more sensitive than the center of your tongue, like the middle of it. Hmm. Uh, and so each actual taste bud cells have their own preferences and their own sort of trainings for levels of intensity that they're going to understand. So each cell might be, say, uh, one cell might be completely sensitive to bitter and then sour and then sweet and least sensitive to, say, salty and umami. So if you assume like 10 levels of intensity on each cell, and then you could have hundreds of thousands of different combinations, we don't, we don't actually know. And so there are studies out there, and I put studies in quotes that say, we can taste 100,000 flavors. And that's not really the same thing because taste and flavor aren't the same thing. Mm. If taste is physically like absorbing and or like probing the thing that's in your mouth, the flavor is the overall experience of eating it, uh, the overall like stuff you get off of that, that experience of, of tasting it. So I like to think of it this way. Taste is the notes. Flavor is the music, hmm. right? Flavor is so much more because they're put together. Individually cool, but together emotional, incredible, moving. So flavor preferences actually come from experiences and emotional memories rather than the physical uh, absorption of what's happening. Maybe you don't really like bitter things, but the reason you don't like them has less to do with the experience of bitter and more to do with your own memories, your own experiences of eating those things. Flavor preferences come from those experiences but they can also interestingly come through amniotic fluid during pregnancy. So some of those can be kind oh. of not inherited so much, but like those experiences can come through your just existing as a human. But, you know, it's funny because like uh, expecting people like sometimes they have the weirdest cravings, though, right? Yeah. Like you yeah. have like pica or just like just in the middle of the night, just be like, I really need like basically like, oh, I want potato chips in in my ice cream or something. And Are then, you talking about pregnant women? Yeah. Or just people? Oh, yeah. I don't know if that's true. I don't right? know if that's true or not. I don't know. I don't I, know. I don't I, but I'm up. just wondering like because they, they you know, it's kind of known that like when people are pregnant, they tend to have like really bizarre cravings sometimes, like how much that does impact 
like you say, yeah. if you're exposed to it. I think that's why the late night treat Jimmy Fallon, uh, Ben and Jerry's flavor with potato chips and ice cream. That's probably why it's got to be so popular. <laughs> I, I think of it from an evolutionary perspective, and this is more of a like armchair evolutionary perspective. But it's like if I am somebody whose parents eat mom, mom, mother, the person who is birthing me, whoever they are, eat a lot of borscht. Right. You're you're essentially training your baby to also eat the thing that you eat, which mm. makes sense if you're living in a savanna and you don't exactly get like a varied diet. You can't just go to the store and buy a bunch of different types of things. You eat what you eat, what you eat based on where you are. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective that we would be training our baby to our, our offspring to eat the things that we eat. So I thought that made a lot of sense. I, I think also because you mentioned the strong emotional connection we have to flavors is why like people can get really upset and opinionated over other people's food preferences right yes like uh people you know just seeing the typical cuisine in another country and you're, oh that's disgusting or like just, or if mm-hmm. people just have like something weird that they like and other people are like oh that's just got and like yeah people get really yeah. really mad and i think that's they do why like it's this. hard for people that's why i said don't be a pizza bigot yeah yeah the, like a, a true ter- the term bigot is that you value your opinion over all other opinions no other opinion matters my mm. opinion's the only opinion that matters right and so don't be a pizza bigot Think about it in a little more of a holistic way that pizza can be whatever that person thinks is interesting. And I'm going to come back to it. Yeah. Don't so some people, you know, had parents that put pineapple on their pizza when they were kids and they got fond memories. Other people had good parents. Ouch. So <laughs> uh, so there are some flavor preferences, I do want to say, that are built in that are like genetically based. Cilantro, very famously, also known as coriander. Um, there's genetics in the nose, actually, and olfactory receptor genes that have stronger reaction to the aldehydes that are in cilantro leaves. So they end up tasting soapy. That's not to say that if you really wanted to eat it, you probably could. Uh, just like anything, it, it has to do more with the flavor than the taste. You are tasting more soap, but hey, maybe if you you have really good experience emotionally with that, you would, you know, relate to it. Since most flavor is emotional, I wanted to give a couple more examples. Um, Like you might have a certain combination that you like, but nobody else likes. You know, I don't like blue cheese. I know a lot of people who love blue cheese. Not into blue cheese, Um, yeah. I lived in- You didn't like brie in the last episode we talked about. I still don't like brie. I wasn't going to bring it up. (laughs) Bring it up. Um, I was going to bring up. I lived in England, uh, Mm. and there, because corn is a new world food, it's really more of a topping. They don't like cook with it. Mm. Uh, You can go to Subway in the UK and get corn as a topping on your Subway sandwich. Uh, In Brazil, they put corn on pizza. It's a pizza topping, typical. Uh, And also, nobody. I mean, Brazil, yes, because it's a new world food. But like in the UK, they don't eat corn on the cob. That's not like a food that exists there. So uh, meanwhile, for me, corn on the cob with butter and salt living in the Midwest is like pure summertime. You know, I can't imagine a more beautiful thing. You know, it's funny you you say that, oh, corn's a new world food, but pizza's a new world food. Great example. Why don't we talk about the history of pizza? Let's do that. This is excellent. Yes. (laughs) Thank you, Because I almost said, like, well, you know, uh, well, if pizza's from the old world, technically they're putting pizza under their corn. But then I thought, like, but tomatoes, which I'm sure you'll get to. So go ahead. No, please. That was what I was going to say next. Tomatoes are from South America, right? That is, yeah, tomatoes are a new world food. They only existed in Europe after the cultural expansion from the Colombian. Colombian expansion. So, so, so are, so are the, potatoes. Imagine too, right? Italian food. Yes, potatoes are so, as well, but, as are most chili peppers. Then so, what's um, the British excuse for not having corn? Is a red, but you've got potatoes and tomatoes. Yep. You've I incorporated agree. those. That's I guess right. they just couldn't figure anything out to do with the corn. They'll just sprinkle it on the turkey sub, please. <laughs> so Wait. I think a, a, <laughs> I have to do it in the British. Uh, could you sprinkle it on me turkey sub, please? No, no, Aaron Aronson, your sub is ready. Aaron, Aaron, that'll be free sticks. <laughs> oh, God. Aaron Aronson's going to be a recurring character. Recur- the British peasant ordering his corn-covered sub <laughs> to go back to his mud pile. So uh, I wanted to look up why people hated pineapple on pizza to really get to now that we know how taste works to really get to nicola's question Mm -hmm. um and 
people on Reddit, which is a great place to go to find out where people are jerks, um, is it's too sweet. It's too juicy. It's the wrong texture. People don't like hot fruit. I get that. I also don't like hot fruit. And people are just like, it's not a traditional pizza topping, um, which Mm. I want to push back on. because we have to look at the history of pizza. And according yeah. to Carol Helstosky, the author of Pizza, A Global History, pizza is one, way older than you think, uh, which is pretty cool. The ancient Greeks were eating something like pizza. Here's a fresco, Julian, look at this. This is a fresco, uh, it's from Pompeii. Oh my gosh. If you look on the left of this fresco. Yeah, that's a that's a pizza, all right. If I ever saw one, I'd, I'd tell you what. Yeah, it looks exactly like what we would think of as a pizza today. That is from the first century BCE. <gasps> it's mm. Panis Focaccius. It's also known as center bread, floor bread, or fire bread. It's a focaccia with, like, vegetables on it. The thing is, it wouldn't have had tomatoes because they didn't exist yet in the old world, if you want to call it that. But it's not really a pizza, but it's something very similar. And so if you can imagine Italian food without tomatoes, they had these things already. They already had, you know, flatbreads that they would put stuff on, usually garlics and oils. Mm. It was very normal. And then in the, like, 15th, 16th century, after Europeans had settled into the New World and killed a whole bunch of people and taken their stuff, they brought it back to Europe and started eating it. And tomatoes became popular in Naples, Italy, in the very southern part of Italy uh, for sauces and that only happened literally a couple hundred years ago. Yeah. For a long time they thought that tomatoes were poisonous <laughs> so it took them a while to figure out let's eat these and they're delicious. <laughs> uh, so pizza as we know it now we know was created in Naples although the history story that you've probably heard is apocryphal where like oh the margarita pizza he took it to the queen and it's the colors of Italy and all of that. That's all not uh, real. That's uh. a made up story. Uh, so pizza as we know it is yeasted flatbread tomatoes with cheese on it um and its original form it were, there were two kinds there was a red pizza which was marinara sauce which is named that way because this was served typically to dock workers mm-hmm. the mariners yeah. so marinara sauce anchovies and maybe oregano that was the red pizza and then the white pizza was just garlic and oil and some seasoning Uh, And it was, again, on like a bread. Uh, And it was the food for people who needed a quick bite 200 years ago in the, you know, ocean town of Naples. And then it came to the U.S. in the 19th century through immigration. And by the 20th century, you are more likely to find pizza in New York City than you were in Rome or Milan, even into 1900 and 1910. Wow. This was in an interview that Carol did on First We Feast. Uh, and all of this is Neapolitan-style pizza, this very thin, crackery-type crust with a topping on it, whether it's a tomato sauce with a basil and a cheese or, you know, whatever. This is making me so hungry. I'm so note. hungry, too. Like, this is sounds so I'm so good. sorry. So Chicago-style pizza pizza, by the way, was actually, uh, do you know where Chicago style pizza came from, Julian, other than I, Chicago? I'm sure. Oh, I was going to say, <laughs> I was, was going to like walk right into it. Like, uh, I'm going to go with Chicago there, Trace. <laughs> it, uh, it's a Sicilian pizza. Oh, okay. But not really pizza. It comes from something called Sfincione, which is essentially a savory pie, uh, which that. also makes sense because Chicago style is not actually pizza. Uh, it's more of a savory bread bake. And if you disagree, fight me. That's fine. I <laughs> think it's not pizza okay well i guess it is its own category according to other you know what probably happened because they call it chicago style pizza is the people who like immigrated there from sicily were making this thing that they never called pizza and somebody from somewhere else showed up and had it and they were like this is like pizza but chicago (laughs) style and now they're fighting about it you're probably right (laughs) that's probably exactly what went down so the person (laughs) who made it was like i would never call this a pizza it's its own thing somebody else had it it's a pizza and now there's like they think their pizza's better than our pizza and you're like not <laughs> technically pizza i guess what, what yeah. was it called again Sfincione. 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 See, that's a good Sfincione. Like, yeah. the, the calzone that is much maligned, but I do love a calzone, right? It's just a folded over pizza, but nobody calls that like a Louisiana-style pizza and argues if that's worse. I have no idea where the calzone gained prominence <laughs> in the United States, but like... I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> the Albuquerque I didn't know I was going to have to look it up. Albuquerque <laughs> style pizza is a calzone. <laughs> uh, actually, the calzone originated in 1700s Naples, Italily. See, there you go, right? And so it's actually it more traditional than Chicago style. Say that. <clears throat> Saying that. Okay, Whew, all right. Fight me. 
Uh, it's not, they're not in the same category. They're all so, they're all related but different. So the American pizza that we know now, it has a thicker bread, more focaccia-like, is like a mix of the Chicago-style pizza and the Naples-style like cracker-thin pizza. And so we have like a mix. It has more toppings, has a thicker crust with sauce, uh, and it's more. It's really, which I thought that was really cool. So if we're looking at the Reddit arguments of it being not oh, no. traditional, the uh, <laughs> traditional pizza had anchovies maybe oregano and maybe marinara sauce on it or garlic and that's it yeah and you can never change because tradition right. demands it exactly so if we're just arguing about tradition then uh get your facts straight yeah uh it wasn't until the 1950s that pineapple even became a popular fruit in the united states because what happened in the 1950s hawaii became a state right and so then it became this like cool thing to have a uh, tiki culture became all the rage and hawaii oh, became a state along with alaska and and pineapples became this huge market export that you could get all over the United States. Not to mention that after World War II, food industry started to become popular. And so they could can it, they could get it everywhere. And the first person to put pineapple on pizza, the person who invented it, was from Canada. In 1962, a Greek immigrant named Sam Panopoulos, he visited Naples. He liked the pizza. He used to drive across the border to Detroit in Michigan to get the pizza there. And then he had had his own restaurant and he put pizza on the menu. And honestly, the menu... The menu sounds wild. Oh, I was going to say, the other <laughs> topping on a Hawaiian pizza is Canadian bacon. Yeah, makes total sense. Which I was sense. always like, which one came from where? Hawaii, So yeah. the, the Canadian bacon is the local flavor, and then the pineapple is the ooh. Yeah, ooh, ooh, ooh. Hawaiian pizza. But it's actually uh, Canadian Ontario pizza. It was invented in southern Ontario, right across the border from Detroit in southern Ontario. So, by the way, wow. Sam's restaurant sounds wild, because it, it sounds like a cheesecake factory Tell it had pizza it. it had chinese food it had sweet and sour chicken with pineapple in it so they thought let's just put the pineapple from the sweet and sour chicken on the pizza which is amazing this, um, this sam sam pop what was his last panopolis panopolis the sam panopolis guy i bet he was a lot of fun i bet, I bet that he guy was, was down huge amount of fun i bet he was down for anything yeah i bet so you just <laughs> sam <laughs> And I'm not talking just like culinary wise. Oh hey, oh hey, welcome to my restaurant. Do you want to try my Hawaiian pizza? Oh, it's it is so good. I'm picturing a machine that's just got all the ingredients in the restaurant, and you hit a button, and it just jams three of them together, and it's like random random pizza. I love that. Oh yeah. So about the same time that this became popular, tiki culture was being popular, they put the pineapple on the pizza for the first time. So if you think of taste and flavor, right, pineapple pizza relative to pizza is still quite new. It's only like 60, 70 years old. And this happened, again, right across the border from Michigan. And in Ypsilanti, Michigan, which is just outside of Detroit, this brother uh, duo, Jim and Tom Moynihan, bought a popular Italian sando place called Dominic's. Mm. Uh, it had pasta and sandwiches and pizza. It was a takeout business, and the pizza business was very uh, was very good for them. So they started making lots and lots more pizzas, and they would... they did this thing where they would take it to your house in 30 minutes or less, actually, at one point, uh, because they renamed their restaurant eventually Domino's, and in 1960 invented the pizza box, the cardboard pizza box, and became the creators of what we think of as the delivery pizza biz. Now, I couldn't find a connection, but it seems like an interesting coincidence that Sam's restaurant was just across the border from them in Mm. Detroit, and pizza restaurants pop up mostly in places where you would expect them just like the dock workers in Naples during blue collar places, colleges where there's lots of young people and people who need a quick slice. That's where pizza restaurants go. And so this made pizza accessible to everybody and pineapple pizza was part of the deal, which I think is just super interesting. What I'm hearing is that the area around Detroit, Michigan, 50 years ago, was to pizza what Florence was to art during the Renaissance. All the Honestly, greatest yes. pizza minds <laughs> were gathered uh, in one look, place just trying to make some dough. Look, not gonna deny, Little Caesars is also from Michigan. Jet's yeah. Pizza is also from Michigan. We had a lot of pizza popping off it? in Detroit. We had Detroit-style pizza, of course, um, which, if you haven't had, is really good. There's cheese on the outside of the crust. It doesn't matter. I'm really hungry. Okay, oh, so let me, let me, let's just wrap this up so we can, we can get everybody we can to eat. eat. Do you want to get a pizza after this? Let's go get a pizza. Okay, so... 
<laughs> um, this delivery style made pizza accessible to everyone. And even though Italian heritage meant that most commonly you would see vegetables uh, and sometimes meats on pizza, pepperoni, which was invented by Italian-American immigrants, became the most popular pizza topping pretty quickly. It has a nice flavor. It goes well with the sauce and with the cheese. Um, but pineapple on pizza spread literally everywhere on the globe because pizza became one of the most popular foods in the West. So a YouGov poll found that 53% of people actually like pineapple on pizza. So by a simple majority, it's a normal pizza topping, even if you personally don't like it. So deal with that. Um, And then to address the arguments head on, fruit doesn't belong on pizza is a stupid argument. Tomatoes are fruit. Pears. Pears are also a fruit and they're on pizza, usually paired with figs, which are a fruit. There's corn, which is on pizza. You can get it in most countries apparently in england i guess yeah you can get that that is also a fruit corn is a fruit olive is a fruit you get black olives on your supreme pizza at the freaking grocery store and that's a fruit so fruit you could argue maybe sweet then doesn't belong on pizza except for that peppers are sweet there's sugar in the sauce there's caramelized onions on pizza and that's sugary the pear and fig pizza which i mentioned also with a little bit of arugula some prosciutto Maybe like a really crispy crust. And I did yeah. not grow up eating any of that, by the way. So I have no like emotional food memories to those things. Those are just objectively yummy. Maybe a little balsamic <laughs> drizzle. Well, okay, I'm I think hungry. I think this is getting to like a larger point, and that is kind of what you started with, right? Of like being a pizza bigot. But I, I think we could expand that to cultural bigot, flavor bit, whatever, right? Is like yeah. trying to defend a matter of taste sometimes literally like pizza but sometimes just you know whatever people like or dislike right with like some sort of quote-unquote logical basis is is a fool's errand right almost yeah 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 i I mean i think we answered nicola's question pretty early on in this Mm -hmm. diatribe right like nicola's question was why do people taste things differently and the reason is the flavor everyone listens to music differently everyone tastes things you put the same bit of music in front of somebody some people will like it and some won't and most of that has to do with their experiences uh, and things they like to do with their time and with their brain and that's the same thing that it is with food it's the notes that make the song but the song is the thing you experience so i want people to think about the flavors of the things that they like on their pizza more than the toppings themselves you know a lot of people especially in the united states are like if there's no meat then it's not a thing and that's weird uh we should probably be thinking outside the box on that mainly because we don't want to have to move the earth further away from the sun in order to save ourselves and factory farming is another way that we can create greenhouse gases but uh so well done well done bravo thank you i just came up with that right now on the fly that is not my script (laughs) <laughs> um, but I think the the flavors themselves are not even that important. I think people are doing exactly what you're saying. And that is that they're just policing what they think should be allowed. Uh, yeah. If you ask people in a survey if anchovies are a good pizza topping, the surveys say that people think it's like their least favorite. I do not think most people have ever even had an anchovy, let alone a topping on their pizza. It is not a popular pizza topping in 2023. And then Time Magazine designated pineapple pizza as one of the 13th most influential pizzas of all time. Uh, I'm going to assume it's number 13 because when you list it like that, you can't say the 13 most influential pizzas and have pineapple pizza not be the last one. But that's Okay. You know, it is a, a plot point in a Futurama episode that Fry spends all his money on the last can of anchovies because that's just what he wants I on remember pizza. that episode. It, it was, was excellent. Episode. Also, I do want to point out that if we're talking about traditional, you know, what is real pizza, Naples is the home and birthplace of pizza. They literally license pizza restaurants and give them certificates if they can make real Napoli pizza. Oh, I've seen uh, that actually. I was wondering what that yeah. was about. You go to a fancy pizza restaurant with one of those those uh, those wood or coal ovens and they have a certificate on the wall from Naples and it's like the international group that says you make real pizza good you know who doesn't have it is every delivery pizza place but that's okay (laughs) um I still like them uh, but this guy named I'm a, I'm imagining a bunch of Italian dignitaries in my local pizza hut, <laughs> yeah. right? And they're like, ah, yes, this is the traditional way you keep the two liters of Mountain Dew cold. <laughs> this is like an icebox. Be like, oh, you have not done it well. You do not get your certificate. Uh, we cannot. I will not hand out. I'm, I'm slipping into French. <laughs> you're, 
Your dessert pizza is not good. I, <laughs> it's too covered in frosting. What is this Oreo pizza? <laughs> this is the cheese not... inside of my crust is wrong. We use a hydroxy pizza in Napoli. <laughs> so there is a guy, master pizza chef, Franco Pepe. He owns a restaurant north of Naples and has been named the best pizza maker in the world on multiple occasions. And guess what he makes, Julian? Is it going to be pineapple, pineapple on pizza? pizza? And he go. says people might not like it because of the double acidity, which is pineapple plus tomato. And when it comes back to taste and flavor, you know, salt, fat, acid, heat, double acid is too much. You need, you know, more salt, more fat. Um, but... Okay. He went on to say that. Yeah, he went on to say pineapples that you see on pizza typically are from cans. They're pre-cooked with a huge amount of syrup and sugar, and Mm. that that can affect their flavor. So his critically acclaimed pineapple pizza uses fresh fruit served cold, not baked with the pizza, and each and it's wrapped in prosciutto ham. Which sounds really, really, really good. And really salty, right? And on a pizza, right. It's balanced. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you want a really good pineapple pizza, maybe try adding the pineapple after cooking and make it fresh, not from a can. But in the end, 93% of Americans eat pizza every month. 13% of people ate pizza today. We are about to be some of them. Yes. Uh, Based on (laughs) our current... Based on our current listener metrics, <laughs> that would be like 30 people in this audience ate pizza today. Um, so we like different flavors because of our experiences, similar to musics or colors or smells. We have memories lined up with them. And if you unpack those flavors, uh, then you will find out why you like things. So I like coffee because my dad drank it every time we went out to breakfast, which I love doing with my dad. Um, and that's why I probably like it now. And, you know, if you apply the same uh, process to examining why other people might like certain flavors, maybe you'll learn a lot about them, too. I love that. Isn't that nice? So next time you want to try pineapple on pizza, uh, I think you should, especially if you think you will not like it. You should definitely try it. And there are ways to change these emotional and personal historical connections. A lot of people try new foods when they travel. So, you know, don't be a pizza bigot, but travel somewhere. And while you're there on vacation, listening to some luau music, you know, sitting near the beach, the waves of Lake Ontario are splashing nearby at your Canadian (laughs) pizza parlor. (laughs) <laughs> try some uh, ham on Hawaiian pizza. Detroit. I didn't say tropical. I just said luau music. That was your tropics. <laughs> no, when, was... the, when the earth heats up in Detroit's a tropical climate. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> in the end, don't be a pizza bigot. All pizza is good pizza. Except Chicago style. I did. <laughs> It's technically not pizza. It's its own thing. It's a pizza. It's been, it's a, we've been fighting it. each other needlessly <laughs> when our true enemy is the Albuquerque style pizza, the calzone. <laughs> well, that was lovely. Thank you, Trace. Thank, Thank you, for, you to uh, Nicola from Los Angeles. Please tell me where to get good pizza. 90% oh, of West Coast pizza I've had is bad. It's either doughy I'm or so wet starved. or bad in so many different ways. Please tell me the best place to get pizza in Los Angeles. Oh, there's Thank this you. new place um, they deliver in 30 minutes or less called uh, Domino's. Maybe you've heard of Domino's. it. So good. Domino's. Their thin crust is actually pretty good. <laughs> well, thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of That's Absurd. Please elaborate. We hope you enjoyed uh, us tackling your questions this week. And if you have questions of your own, uh, be sure to submit them to us and you might just hear them back on this show. Yeah, you can always find us on our website, thatsabsurdshow.com. You can find us on most of the social medias. We're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're on threads, we're, we're all I'm over sorry, the place. I'm sorry, Twitter? Yeah, it's this old website that existed. Uh, I don't know what uh, it's called now, but that's no. what it used to be called, so I'm, I don't know. <laughs> I still call I it the know. Sears Tower and it's been something else for a long time. <laughs> Nice investment, Sears. I hope whoever did that is enjoying their Chicago-style not-pizza somewhere. (laughs) Thanks, y'all, for listening. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye, Julian. Bye, Trace. Seriously, I'm so hungry. That's Absurd, Please Elaborate is produced and hosted by me, Trace Dominguez, and Julian Huguet. Our producer-editor is Kyle Sisk, and the executive producer is also me, Trace Dominguez. 